Welcome to Ceasefire Now Radio, where we discuss war and conflicts globally from the perspective of responsibility for U.S. imperialism. I'm your host, Russell Webster. Today I am discussing topics related to Palestine, the history of anti-Semitism in Western philosophy, and proposed legislation that's intended to expand Holocaust education in Washington State educational systems. I am your host, Russell Webster, and last evening I was I was sitting at my desk uh, thinking about today's show. I was thinking about uh, many other things that I was, I've been working on, but I could overhear the news in the background in the, in the other room. It was the, uh, you know, mainstream media. It was one of the mainstream channels and um, just sort of in the background, I could hear, I could hear things and something sort of um, stuck out to me. I could hear uh, one of the reporters say, uh, they said, U.S. strikes kill militia leader of recent attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq. And I just, I thought about that, that statement uh, for a moment. And uh, the first thing, the first thing that uh, really caught my attention, I think, was the very subject matter of the report. So the very, the very fact that my attention was being drawn to something that is going on somewhere in the world, somewhere far away. And this happens to be something I'm very much intellectually involved with right now and as an activist and as a philosopher and historian and many other things. I'm just engaged in, in uh, especially in the Middle East and, and uh, U.S. imperialism in the Middle East. But it's interesting when, when and, and why and in what context mainstream media chooses to discuss essentially the consequences of U.S. imperialism. It's always interesting to me the, the, way, the ways in which they frame U.S. imperialism and the goings-on around the world, even, you know, especially within the United States. But after hearing that, you know, U.S. strikes, you know, immediately I, I begin to think that, uh, you know, what is, this, what is this reporting intended to mean in general, you know? Who's, who's the audience? And the mainstream is obviously is targeting consumers, so it's what it calls its consumer base. And every region and every area and every country and market you know, has its own, what it considers its consumer base that it's really targeting in terms of advertisement, advertising. So the mainstream media as, a, uh, as an industry in that sense, it's targeting its consumer base. And so another way to think about its consumer base is its, uh, essentially its voting, voting populations as well and specific voting populations that they're concerned about. So essentially, uh, largely white, middle class, middle class and above, that's their main target. 
So what 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 is what is considered newsworthy? Uh, well, that's that's essentially it. What's considered newsworthy is what benefits the financiers, advertising, you know, essentially the business class. <clears throat> so, note that the U.S. strikes. Uh, what is not stated is that the strikes uh, are in the context of the U.S.-Israel war on Palestine, which is a genocide before the world's eyes. It's 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 painted as a as a sort of separate uh, uh, skirmish or even separate war that the United States is uh, somehow engaged in, uh, apart from the U.S.-Israel uh, war on Palestine. But of course, we know that these strikes are directly related to the ongoing war, and they're a part of the war. So, you know, since Washington, uh, along with uh, Washington, D.C., that is, along with large segments of the voting population in Wall Street, uh, this business class, you know, it's all reflective. The, the, that, that which is newsworthy for the, for the nation is also, you know, that which is newsworthy for Main Street. So we see the same news being replicated. And that's, you know, the way corporate media tends to work. So this part of this programming means that a large segment of this um, consumer block or voting block, the consumer base, is uh, is supposed to be properly programmed to blame uh, Iran immediately for pretty much anything going on in the Middle East. So American citizens are supposed to... uh, to blame Iran for all of the, the, the manufactured wars and occupations. Even though the United States has, you know, had long held plans to control the Iranian government, that's no secret. So note more, though, uh, that the concern for the United States is its supposed care for the, you know, three service members who were killed by a drone uh, attack. This was inside of um, Jordan. So U.S. troops stationed in in Jordan, an ally to Israel. The U.S. troops are stationed all over throughout the Middle East, something uh, many Americans also don't know about. So according to the, the Department of Defense, they quote, they say that the attack occurred in the early morning at the logistics support base located at Tower 22 of the Jordanian Defense Network. Approximately 350 U.S. Army and Air Force personnel are deployed to the base. The three soldiers were killed when a one-way, uncrewed aerial system impacted their container housing units. So, the U.S. troops are living inside of what I believe to be essentially metal containers in uh, in Jordan and throughout the Middle East, and they are being bombed by uh, drones. I could rewind 15 and 20 years ago, and it was essentially the West was the uh, had a monopoly on drones still, so they were 
we were using that. Uh, we, we had a monopoly on the terror that could also be wielded with the use of drones. So I remember myself when drones were, were put into use in the, those early days of the second phase of the war on terror. Bush, Bush too reclaimed the war on terror, uh, essentially restated the U.S.'s war on terror that Ronald Reagan had stated uh, back in the early 80s. So it soon became clear that, you know, in those the early 2000s that uh, the U.S. Empire's 21st version, 21st century version of uh, state terrorism had become those same nightmares of past generations. You know, after people had begun to envision what was likely to happen once human flight was paired with high-tech arms and automation. We knew that autopilot wasn't the only thing that computers were going to be used for in terms of aviation. We saw that in devastating skill in World War II. So the consequence of this new technology, the automation, the drones, it would lead to, you know, essentially be effective robotic killers in the sky. The consequence of this was mass assassination from afar. So I, I often have said this, imagine, you know, imagine an 18-year-old you know, sipping a soft drink, perhaps somewhere in Utah. While at the same time, they're, they're looking at a screen and they have, uh, you know, controllers resembling those of an aircraft or a video game. And they're sitting there with their, with their snacks, waiting for their lunch break. And they're sitting there from afar, killing black and brown people thousands of miles away. This is the same this is the same child this 18-year-old that turned adult they were essentially fed to the war machine you know they they'd been brought up and cultured to believe that uh what they were doing was perfectly patriotic and fine and normal and uh perhaps even um courageous So that that like we could imagine that child was brought up on you know all sorts of war video games and, and you know, just American culture in general. The same American culture that made us believe it was acceptable to do similar things in Vietnam, South America. Same things we're enabling and abetting and throughout the world right now. So at the other end of those guns and missiles and those mass assassination robots in the sky that come from afar is the terror. So with imperialism, not just U.S. imperialism, obviously, and colonialism in general, 
these ancient trends in, in human history. There's always, of course, the practical means to domination and violence. But then there's always the other side of the coin, and there's the psychological. There's the emotional. There's the fear that is supposed to be created. The extreme version of that is the terror, terrorism. That's been well documented too. If you want to learn more about that, look up state terrorism. Learn about state-led terror. And you'll understand more clearly what terrorism really is. So, with this, with this history that we're still very much involved in, in this moment, this war on terror, I mean, imagine the terror that, that you, have, you, you would have with, with the, the knowledge that you don't know at any moment bombs may rain down on you from somewhere in the heavens, you can't even see where it's coming from. And you didn't even, maybe you didn't even hear it. Way above the clouds. Perhaps you've seen it. You've seen the, the, the destruction from these drones. Perhaps you know, you've heard of friends or family or people you know being attacked by them. Or perhaps you're your own family, as is happening in, in Gaza right now. and Even parts of the West Bank, that, that your entire family has been killed by these death machines from the sky. Whether they're coming from above or below, that's terrifying. And I'm sure you can think for yourself probable and rational responses to such terror and violence and occupation. U.S. history is full of examples of the likely consequences to U.S. imperialism. So we know the horrors that have come with this so-called war on terror. It's been well established that terror begets terror, whether during the war on terror or elsewhere. We saw what came out of it. We've seen, we see what continues to come out of it. It's been well established, and it's been equally well established that governments understand that colonialism and imperialism and Racism entail resistance to it. However, the government terror, genocide, and theft is justified. Whether it's called manifest destiny or Zionism or otherwise, 
those fighting and surviving against it are justified. I'm talking about the war on terror right now, if you've just joined. I'm talking about many aspects of it. And the costs of the ongoing U.S. war on terror are expressed in a recent, uh, there's a Brown University study. And it, it uh, I'm going to quote, it estimates that indirect threat deaths Indirect deaths, those resulting not from combat operations but from various types of devastation they leave behind, from wars in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, have already reached 3.6 to 3.7 million lives. and continue to grow by the day. This appalling toll comes on top of the nearly one million lives lost to combat in these and other conflicts, including in Libya and Somalia during the same period. End of quote. I think you can understand where I'm, what I'm getting at here and This is just scraping the surface. This data, these statistics, these numbers, countless lives lost, countless minds terrorized and traumatized for generations. This is the moment we are in. So, we created the conditions for this. I mean, imagine the terror in Gaza. Attempt to. Attempt to put, attempt to put yourself there and imagine. perhaps amongst the most devastating, inhumane, immoral, and ghastly wars in recent memory. And for Palestine, it's in many ways unprecedented in its cruelty, while it echoes memories from not so far past. The flattening of Gaza and Israeli terrorism in the West Bank continues But comparisons of Jewish suffering during the Holocaust and Nazi techniques of extermination and expulsion to Palestinian suffering and U.S.-Israel techniques to mass extermination, genocide, and forced expulsion, such comparisons mount. I mean, I think it was November of last year when unthinkable stories were emerging concerning the quick spread of starvation in Gaza and the unthinkable things we sometimes must do to survive as humans. I believe I just heard on on, uh, Democracy Now! on my way here, I heard that 
it's cited that 250,000 Palestinians are starving right now. And now we are sanctioning and fighting virtually the one agency that has been keeping Palestinians alive since before October 7th, 2023. Unthinkable. So, you know, we created the conditions for the existence of a militia leader whom we use as the pretext for having U.S. troops spread throughout the Middle East to fight the so-called war on terror that we invented to continue the war, the Cold War, which we invented, to continue our monopoly on control over the world's energy markets. And of course it's oil. It is such an old story in U.S. history and the history of imperialism in general, that it would be shocking that one would have to explain it if it were not for the unparalleled system of education and propaganda that serves an unparalleled empire. They cannot think for themselves. By the way, the three service members killed Sergeant William Jerome Rivers of Carrollton, Georgia, Special Kennedy Layden of Sanders of Waycross, Georgia, and Special Brianna Alexandria Moffett of Savannah, Georgia. They were all African American reservists, two of which, two of whom were women. The militia leader who the United States killed uh, in response, the same militia leader who is uh, engaging in actions right now, engaging in combat, engaging in operations, not unlike those uh, that the Houthis are engaged in in Yemen, declaring very loudly over and over that the fighting, the resistance will cease. The present resistance will cease when the occupation and war on Gaza ceases. It's very clear. However, however it's framed in mainstream media, it's clear what's going on. And that's not to say that resistance, qua resistance, that all resistance is going to cease. It's to say that the escalations, that the resistance, the axis of resistance is reacting to at this moment are very clearly in relation to the ongoing U.S.-Israel genocide in Palestine.
So, Washington and the media act as though resistance to colonialism and U.S. domination and occupation in the Middle East is the reason for the war on terror, which we have long known was manufactured from the start, much in the way the present genocide was. And Washington's long-held desire to have control over Iran's government and society. Soon after the report of U.S. strikes, I hear a report talking about the discovery of cages, I think maybe in one of the tunnels in Gaza, where Israel says its hostages were held. That is, Israeli hostages were being held in these cages, is what Israel uh, is reporting. So this is also considered newsworthy because it is considered useful propaganda for sustaining pro-Israel, pro-Zionist attitudes towards the genocide of Palestinians or, I quote, war. There is no mention of the cages where Palestinians are presently being held. There is also no mention of the fact that U.S. and Israel could have very likely bombed Israeli hostages at any point after October 7th. They were carpet bombing and they conti- we continue to carpet bomb. It's also become clear that intelligence regarding the U.S. war on terror, generally, I'm just going to put it at that, has been shown to consistently be lacking. The pretext of a war on terror has been shown to be just that. Another version of manifest destiny. So what's also not newsworthy in in that reporting is, at least on, on this mainstream program I was listening to, are the reports on the cages where Israel holds Palestinians on regular basis well before October 7th, 2023. What is not reported is the number of Palestinians the IDF and Israeli civilians have captured and caged since October 7th, 2023, without charges, including, of course, countless children. What is not reported is the state of hell that has overtaken Gaza and the West Bank. What is not reported is the misery and suffering of the Palestinian people. What is not reported is what they want, namely, liberation from colonialism. Something, perhaps, that would serve all of the world freedom from colonialism.
I'll be right back. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing Critics who prophesize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming Was the loser now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing Senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside raging will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times they are changing. And fathers throughout the land And don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command Your old road is rapidly aging Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand For the times they are changing It is cast The slow one now Will later be fast As the present now Will later be past The order is rapidly fading And the first one now Will later be last For the times They are a-changing Welcome back. This is Ceasefire Now, KYRS, Thin Air, Community, and Public Radio. That was Bob Dylan, The Times They Are a Changing. He says, uh, Come mothers and fathers through camps, expulsion, emigration, forced emigration, annihilation. Pogroms, mass executions, death camps. In short, anti-Semitism is the expression of hostility and hatred against Jewish people. Now, if you consider that list I just read, 
you should be able to understand how it directly maps onto virtually every example of colonial and imperial domination and oppression. And we're seeing this in real time. We're seeing these things being used against people throughout the world right now, especially in Palestine and Sudan and Congo, Darfur. These states and empires and these governments and mainstream media and everything that makes up the mind of power, the intelligence from coming from its institutions of higher learning and filling the halls of Congress that Dylan was just talking about there. So they use defamation, they defame the people people who they want to kill, control, use universal vilification. They isolate people. They prohibit them in professional ways. Expel. Send people away in mass, make them march with no food, no shoes, nothing. Finally, annihilation. These are all the things that uh, together constitute uh, forms of anti-Semitism, but more generally, uh, hatred of peoples generally. These are the mechanisms that are used. I'd like to talk about a philosopher. His name is uh, Martin Heidegger. Martin Heidegger is a German philosopher who lived during both world wars. He was raised Roman Catholic and partly educated at a Jesuit school and went on to other higher higher schools of learning. He studied under another famous, perhaps more famous philosopher than him himself, uh, Edmund Husserl. Uh, Husserl was raised in a Jewish family. And Heidegger's most famous student, her name was Hannah Arendt. She was uh, author of The Origins of Totalitarianism, which I was discussing a little bit last week. And she was uh, Jewish as well. And so what, you know, what separates Heidegger perhaps most strikingly from his most famous teacher and his most famous student is the fact that Heidegger was a Nazi. He joined the Nazi party. So Heidegger's anti-Semitism, therefore, is known by his behaviors, so the political choices he made. But there's also evidence contained in what is now the infamous black notebooks that he wrote, in which anti-Semitism is laid plain with the intent for the notebooks to be published after his death. In these notebooks, Heidegger suggests that the world history is in part a movement of nations and that Jewish people do not have a nation and are therefore understood to be contained in what he called world Judaism, 
which was understood to be at war with national socialism or Nazism, according to Heidegger and many others. So Heidegger envisioned, uh, again, Heidegger is a Nazi uh, German philosopher, lived during the two world wars. He envisioned a, an epic war of sorts, like spanning millennia. So he believed that Nazism and or what he termed to be uh, national socialism, not to, can be, not to be confused with socialism, big S socialism. But he believed that Nazism and world Judaism were in conflict and that Jewish people constituted a race of people that wanted to rule the world by making it uh, homeless or nationless or stateless perhaps or I might say governmentless or anarchic without government so Heidegger's allegiance was in what he called a spiritual national socialism this was Heidegger's fear along with the rest of the so-called West that there was some sort of Jewish conspiracy and we see the same rhetoric being put forth today. Um, see it across the political spectrum. See it emanating in all sorts of harmful ways. So according to, uh, to Andrew Mitchell and Peter Trani, who edited... Uh, one of the criticisms of the black books, they quote that the idea that Jews lived by a principle of race, this is a keystone of Heidegger's thinking of Judaism, that Jews would be just as racist as the national socialists, that's what he thought. On this basis, Heidegger comes to think world Judaism and the national socialists as somehow united in a metaphysical opposition seeking each other's annihilation. Furthermore, according to these editors, the, the idea that Jewish uh, people live by a principle of race, uh, it's a keystone of Heidegger's thinking of Judaism. That uh, Jewish people would be uh, just as racist as the National Socialists. On, the base, on this basis, Heidegger comes to think world Judaism and National Socialists as somehow united in this metaphysical opposition seeking each other's annihilation that Jewish people would relentlessly devoted to the task of uprooting all beings from being. The stereotype of the wandering Jew here reaches ontological proportions, spreading their own homelessness to all they encounter in an ontological uprooting of beings from being. Now, this is Heidegger in his own words. Here's the quote. World Judaism, spurred on by the emigrants let out of Germany, is everywhere elusive. In all the unfurling of its power, it need nowhere engage in military actions. Or as it remains for us to sacrifice, the best blood of the best of our own people. So, I think it's pretty unambiguous there. Uh, 
the extent to which Heidegger engaged in anti-Semitic behavior. Not only in, in his direct uh, material support of uh, a Nazi, uh, Nazi project and joining the Nazi party, but also in his writings. So I've been talking about anti-Semitism and the history of Western philosophy, which is also a history of anti-Semitism in Western history and Western civilization in general. You can't disconnect the leading philosophy with the history, especially since the... uh, We know the ancient truisms that the victors are the ones who write the history, so it's very important to critically analyze that history if we're going to understand our own situation. Anti-Semitism hardly begins with Heidegger. In fact, uh, One writer quotes that several of the major Enlightenment philosophers, including Hume, Voltaire, and Kant, developed elaborate justifications for anti-Semitic views. According to uh, the editors, a common thread in Western philosophy, they say, is an attempt to 
diminish the influence of Judaism or the Jewish people on European history. A common thread in in Western philosophy uh, is that attempt. Oftentimes, if Jewish people are to play a role in the dominant narratives concerning Western history or human history in general, they are designated some strange place or function that is supposed to either threaten or serve Western civilization. Rarely are Jewish people thought to have a place equal to white Christendom and Western civilization, as it's been named. One narrative uh, being spread throughout contemporary Christianity is that Jewish people, uh, through the creation of a Jewish state, have both a positive and a negative place in world history. That is, they serve uh, Christendom by establishing the so-called Jewish homeland or state. And then uh, Jewish people of, in the state must be sacrificed at some future date so that the Messiah can finally return. That's the story, or one of the stories, anyway. This most extreme form of anti-Semitism is uh, a continuation. It just continues this thread of anti-Semitism running through so-called Western history. Moreover, here's a quote. Voltaire challenged the biblical account of human history by asserting that only the Jews were descendants of Adam and everybody else pre-Adamites though the non-European ones were degenerate or inferior to the European ones. Voltaire saw the Adamites as a major menace to European civilization since they kept infecting it with what he considered the horrible immorality of the Bible. Voltaire therefore insisted that Europe should separate itself from the Adamites and seek its roots and heritage and ideals in the best of the pre-Adamite world. For him, the Hellenic world. In fact, that's where many, if not most, Western uh, philosophers uh, tend to find their identity or their their beginnings in 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 their philosophical identity is in the ancient uh, Greek world or the Hellenic world. Perhaps the most famous German philosopher. Uh, uh, of them all, Immanuel Kant, rendered uh, Jewish people heteronymous or incapable of transcending material forces, which a moral order required. In this way, uh, Kant felt that Jewish people are the opposite of autonomous, rational Christians and are therefore incapable of being incorporated into an ethical Christian society. Lori Schrage, a professor of philosophy at Florida International University, says that, I quote, For Kant, this tie rendered Jews heteronomous or incapable of transcending material forces, which a moral order required. Kant, in his anthropology, called uh, Jewish people a nation of cheaters, and depicted them as a group that has followed not the path of transcendental freedom, but that of enslavement to the material world. In America, where universities uh, become more uh, secular, uh, another quote, uh, 
at philosophy departments were among the last to hire professors of Jewish ancestry. This was not because those who entered the profession were more anti-Semitic than their peers in other fields, but instead because Jews were regarded in the early 20th century as non-Western and therefore unfit to teach Western philosophy. The Harvard philosopher William Hawking is alleged to have said that, quote, the Jewish mind could not properly interpret and teach the philosophy and history of Western Christian civilization. So this thread runs deep, and I've just, again, I've just scraped the surface. It's, there's, a, there's a strong anti-Semitic thread throughout Western history. And now there is legislation being proposed to bring attention, greater attention to things, to genocides and especially the Holocaust. But there's also more to that story as well. So the legislation is a continuation of national policies in recent years. In 2020, President Donald Trump quickly signed on to the Never Again legislation with unanimous support in the Senate. Shortly before that, Donald Trump was praising actions of neo-Nazis throughout the United States as anti-Semitism was rapidly increasing under the explicitly fascist administration. Charles W. Mills was a well-known black Jamaican-American philosopher. He passed recently in 2021 at the age of 70. In one of his books called The Racial Contract, in which he effectively argues that there is an unwritten social contract underwriting John Locke's uh, social contract, which states that it preferences for whiteness, which then protects the white supremacist status, status quo. And part of his argument, he describes a history of genocides committed by Western civilization and that the Holocaust, which occurred in Eastern Europe, has been given an epistemological and ontological privilege due to a Jewish proximity to whiteness. In other words, that we know much more about the Jewish Holocaust than countless other genocides of perhaps black and brown people the world over committed at the hands of Western nations is a consequent of the racial contract that places whiteness and its concerns above all else. I'll talk about that in further detail at a later date. But Thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next week.